0: This is essentially a new computing paradigm that scientists in the past never had access to. These models, that the classic models, they, they can predict what's going to happen under a certain future climate. The only way I perceive this uh, training of these neural networks is that each neural network is essentially a question mark.
1: Welcome to the 22nd episode of Apple Finch Pudding, your gateway into the world of science. Today's scientist is Chao Pen Chen, a professor in civil and environmental engineering at Penn State University. His work focuses on the interdisciplinary field of hydrology and artificial intelligence. Welcome, Chao Pen.
0: Thanks, Jerome. Thanks for the invitation. Glad to be here.
1: As you have very aptly put it in 2019 in the International Conference on Machine Learning, we will discuss two things today that you cannot avoid actually in the 21st century, climate change and AI. Let's start with climate change. So your work uses land surface models. What are land surface models and what type of insights do they provide?
0: Yes. So land surface models describe the natural environmental processes that are happening on the land surface. So imagine that Rain, it rains, right? So what happens to the water that rain? You know, some of the water infiltrates into the ground, some of the water runs off to the rivers, some of the water become the vital moisture that vegetation use, right? So uh, that is the hydrologic cycle. And the part of the land surface model describes the hydrologic cycle. So we can quantify those components and we can estimate its future projection, uh, future trajectories, and we can, uh, Predict what's going to happen under future climate change. So those are crucial insights provided by these land surface models. Of course, beyond hydrologic cycles, it also describes um, carbon and nutrient cycles. It also describes some of these models contain uh, human processes, uh, and some of these models also uh, describes uh, pollutant transport, reactive reaction transport. Uh, those important processes. Yeah. So
1: actually, those models are are based on physics, so there are mechanistic models. What type of physics does that include? So you have some maybe diffusion, evaporation, stuff like that?
0: Yes, good question. So um, for the water, the, one that, the, the the modules that describes water cycle, uh, because water flows, right? So it typically describes the vertical redistribution of water as it propagates into the soil. It describes how it moves around on the, on the land surface. It describes the freezing, the thermal process, because uh, the hydrologic cycle is coupled with the energy cycle, right? When, you, when it's too hot, water, you know, evaporates, and right? uh, When it's too cold, water freezes. So that energy cycle as well. So it describes all of these coupled processes. And we use some numerical equations to describe these processes, uh, most prominent of all the the principles of conservation, uh, mass balance or energy balance, and then you have some laws that governs the flow of substance uh, from 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 one location to another. So essentially, uh, uh, you have these uh, movements and the fluxes, constitutive laws, and then the the, the laws that describes uh, the interactions between these different cycles.
1: When you say use. You mass balances and energy balances, I assume you have some kind of volume in mind or some area in mind. So what what kind of size are we talking about? Is it like a square kilometer? Or is it like a whole continent? Yeah,
0: so uh, depends on your scope of concern. Uh, you could have hyper resolution models that where we're talking about kilometer scale, or even sub kilometer scale, maybe 100 meter kind of resolution models where you have you divide the landscape into many, many boxes and each one of the small box uh, represent a piece of land, right? So that that little box can be the, the high of resolution would be around like one kilometer or even smaller. Uh, but a lot of the climate models would be working on like uh, above 10 kilometers in size, the straight boxes. Yeah. So and so typically our models have uh, a surface box that's about like the resources that I described. And then it also describes the vertical boxes. You know, the, it discretized the vertical domain into many, many different layers, um, maybe even like centimeters at near the top, but gets to a meter at the bottom. Uh, yeah. So the, the vertical distance is much, much smaller than the horizontal distance.
1: And so all these small boxes that you use actually form one larger box, but don't you Get into trouble when you get at the edges, because the edges you don't model that with what's outside of the edges. So, how do you solve that problem?
0: Right. Hey, this is a good question. Uh, in the natural environment, we have uh, somewhat of a good delineation. Um, it, we have a unit called uh, watershed. You know, so you know it's a description of uh, when water falls; it either go to the river on the east or the river on the west. And you have a natural divide right so a lot of times if you're not modeling the entire continent or the entire earth you're modeling one watershed right so that watershed boundary is a natural divide uh, for for that process because water drives everything right? it drives uh, keeps brings stuff substance downstream so if you follow water you everything else is being uh, transported together with water um, so that watershed divide is a, is a good boundary now for the global climate models and if you model the entire world, then you don't need a bundle, right? Because uh, all this divide are within, in, within the control volume that you care about. So you basically mesh the entire world and similarly all together.
1: So actually you use some natural borders, like from those watersheds you try to include to delineate your boxes. And if you use the whole world yet, then you don't need boxes because you use the whole world.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And these models, can these give us insights? For example, if you want to avoid global warming of 1.2 or 2, de- uh, 1.5 or 2 degrees, can these models help us in that case?
0: Well, yes. Uh, good question. So these models, that the classic models, they, they can predict what's going to happen under a certain future climate. Right? So the climate is a almost an external forcing to these models. The climate provides, the input, the, the driving force, uh, like radiation, like uh, precipitation, temperature, wind speed, those are, are what we call forcing information that gets input into the model. So there's something I had to not discuss. So uh, the, the climate models would would run and they provide that, that information that gets fed into our land surface models and andrologic models. Uh, but we couldn't provide a feedback, for example, the amount of moisture that gets evaporated is a feedback to the to the climate model, right? And the, the climate models is what actually accepts these um, uh, RCP, what they call the, the, the radiation scenarios, right? How much CO2 is there. So the climate models resolve that effect and they provide the forcing conditions for our models. So in the principal way that this is linked, Uh, we can resolve, we can tell you, okay, let's just say you have 1.5 degrees uh, forcing, uh, 1.5 degree warming. And given that warming, you have certain climate, what's gonna happen to your hydrologic cycle, right? And and a prominent projection in the past has been that the the hydrologic cycle is gonna intensify and that's gonna lead to more floods and droughts. And you can see that from the hydrologic cycle and we can quantify that effects, right? and then that also leads to uh things like uh you know the the drying of the forest, right so some land surface models like then dynamic vegetation land surface models would describe that okay because of this drying this forest might die and then the, uh, the the carbon might become a source net source into the atmosphere so so we can better tell you what that back loop like, what the feedback loop is going to be uh, right and uh, now as as this domain evolves we also have uh, some integrated assessment models that links this natural processes with human decisions, right? So as these uh, natural processes change, they will have an impact on humans that lives in that, that uh, ge- geographic location. Uh, and then on the other hand, the human decisions can also impact uh, the, uh, the, the feedback, the land surface processes. So we can tell you what is going to happen if you have certain uh, uh, radiation. We did for conditions, right? Um, however, uh, there is also a feedback that you can include as part of the climate models. If you can, you can better resolve the land surface feedback, you can better predict future uh, climate. And to just to add to that, uh, one of this linkages is like the carbon cycle, right? Uh, so if you are, if you actually have a lot of warming, uh, the, the tropical forest might die. I mean, some of the some of the models could project that uh, but also like in the in the Arctic zones you might have permafrost growing right so that will release also carbon uh and that would I think some of the research right now try to resolve that try to tell you how, what's going to change if if the permafrost do fall uh, so there's a, a the land surface models basically to help you better quantify this place
1: so it's actually the the models that you're using are Functioning together with the other models that have more, for example, the energy budgets that see from now we get warming, what happens to the water cycle. And when you know what happens with the hydrological cycle, it feedbacks to the other model, and then you get a a transaction between those models.
0: Right. Exactly. That transaction is very good work. Now, I think the best way to see this is that the land surface is an integral component of the global climate system. So in order to better future, uh, project future climate, we also need a high fidelity representation of the land surface component. And the land surface component is also what humans are gonna be interacting the most, right? So uh, so we we can better describe what those impacts are.
1: Yeah, we, we live on the land surface, so those models okay. are quite <laughs> important. Yep. <laughs> okay. And, and so, when you talk about feedback feedback loops, is it also, for example, when it gets drier, tree dies, like you said, but trees also evaporate water that they take up from below. So then there's less water, so more trees die and stuff like that. So a feedback feedback loop like that is it also included?
0: Some of the dynamic vegetation models try to describe that process,
1: yeah, okay, but that's not in the models that you're using uh, that is not the that's not the models that I use. Yeah. Okay. And when we go now to AI, so the models that we now described that, or that describe climate are mechanistic models. So they're based on physics. When we talk about AI, we're actually often talking of something that's more or less black box. We, we put some data in the AI does something and comes a prediction out and based on training, that prediction gets better, but we don't always know what happens in between. Is there a way to make AI mechanistic, actually, or useful in your models? I think
0: that it's it's sort of a myth to understand AI as a black box, some data in, some data out. I mean, there has to be in the way that people are educated, right? That's also probably the, what the AI community can see uh, as the role of AI. But the only, the only way I perceive this uh, training of these neural networks is that each neural network is essentially a question mark. And we by training big neural networks, we are able to answer a question, what is this relationship here uh, from big data? That's, that's the way I interpret it. And the and the reason they can train such a neural network uh, is, is some method called uh, differentiable programming, right? Uh, you know, this ability to get gradients out of every calculation step and then po- propagates forward and they, they, they propagate the gradients back uh, to be able to compute a gradient of the loss with respect to their weights, and then update the weights. So a lot of technical terms, but the overall idea is, you get a feedback that allow you to attribute, uh, to attribute the influences of every one of those undetermined weights uh, to 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 be able to describe that impacts, and so you can adjust the weights so that your model overall match with data, right? Uh, so I think realizing. The core, the, the core nature of this paradigm, we can use it very freely. We can use neural networks as question marks in our overall model and in it to be meshed with the with the process-based descriptions. Uh, and this is sort of the what, what, what I call differentiable modeling.
1: So you put data in, but you get a gradient out. You don't get one value out, you get a gradient in between. And based on that gradient, you have knowledge that you can use about uh, the processes that are involved.
0: Exactly. So this this is essentially a new comp- computing paradigm that scientists in the past never had access to. So in, uh, in AI, because they need to train these massive neural networks, they need to do this weight updating at a very high speed. right? They need to do it very efficiently. So they've devised ways of uh, saving information, of uh, keep track of the operations so that they, when, when they're done with the forward calculation, uh, they can very easily uh, back propagate and compute the gradients of some loss function with respect to their weights, right? So this is what they call differentiable programming.
1: That brings me actually to two questions I wanted to ask. So we, uh, there's a question about the paper, but I'll ask a small one before. Is that what, so... You put in data and the model is trained and you can follow the gradient that is being followed by the model to get to its solution is that gradient descent or what is gradient descent and how do you use it
0: yeah so uh, for the gradient descent is you when you run a model forward you realize it doesn't match with the observations so something is wrong in your models so you want to adjust the weights in the model and the gradient descent is a way to uh, a sort of attach a gradients of the outcome with respect to every single weight in your model so you have a direct way of manipulating those weights uh, so that your model works better to, de- to describe uh, the observations right so that's the essence of gradient descent and it's critically enabled by these new uh, computing platforms which I think are like modern engineering marvels. such as you know these are like PyTorch, TensorFlow, you know JAX, and Julia I think they're nothing short of uh, engineering Marvels they allow this process to be so efficient especially on the graphical processing unit like gpus um that's at the efficiency that we've never seen before and that permits a lot of data input that allow them to train these uh these huge neural networks um, and this is some capability that scientists never could do right so it's it's almost like not in our brain like I mean when we get educated we you know we were only concerned with the forward simulation process we were not as concerned about this backward propagation we never thought we should do that you know there's many different ways of computing uh you know optimization you, you can do it like uh, response surface methods etc cetera, etc cetera. but we have not really thought about keeping track of all this weight information and being able to uh, you know model the impact of every single a tunable parameter on the outcome. So this is something that the AI community brought to us. Uh, and if you don't actually study this domain, you won't, you won't actually get this point.
1: Like I said, it also brings me to another question I want to ask you. And that's actually about a paper you wrote. I'm gonna read the title. It's from earlier this year, differentiable modeling to unify machine learning and physical models for geosciences. So differentiable modeling, you more or less explained that, so, or you explained that, but I more or less got it. <laughs> um, now you also talk about other things in that paper, for example, the process of non-uniqueness and stuff like that. Could you explain how your uh, approach is helping solve that problem and actually what the problem is? Right,
0: I mean, these two problems are connected. It's They're all related to this computing paradigm that we were just discussing, this differential programming computing paradigm and the minute you are able to uh, pass the gradients through because that's a highly highly efficient way of making optimizations right it's nothing that our original our geoscientific domains have offered so far Um, the minute that you're able to pass the gradients very efficiently throughout your model you realize you can actually work with a massive amount of weights that allow you to learn like an unknown and very complex function anywhere in the modeling area, right? Um, uh, that also allows you to learn from massive amount of data. That's exactly the way that AI absorbs this data, right? So you you're able to encounter uh, confront your model with uh, massive amount of data sets. uh So you can learn all very heterogeneous, very complicated mapping relationships. Okay, um, now. When we, when we take that paradigm into geosciences, um, in the past, we seldom do this. We often calibrate our models, maybe tune in a few parameters here and there on the sites where you have information, but we seldom bring all the data, all the evidence together to constrain one single problem, one single problem. What that means is, you know, if we allow differentiable programming, we can actually combine all the data sets and efficiently inform a neural network that is now trained on all of this data set. So imagine that you're training a technician that knows how to fix houses, right? Um, this neural networks like that technician. So it knows not only how to fix my houses, but also my neighbor's houses. So his actions and his responses need to be consistent amongst all of these people and my neighbors. So there are a lot of implicit constraints that is brought into the system when we train on all the data together. And that's also, again, something that we geoscientists geoscientists seldom did uh, before this arrival of this AI parent, right? Right. So once we do that, we realize uh, this implicit constraint can actually constrain, uh, can can make the problem much more unique, right? Uh, So let me explain a little bit about this non-uniqueness. Uh, it it basically means that you have multiple parameter sets that gives you the same outcome. So based on that outcome, you cannot uniquely determine a set of parameters, right? Uh, It's just like uh, so many people do very different things. They all lead to the same outcome. And in the end, you tell me who did what, I cannot tell you because they all, everything has the same uh, appearance, right? So now imagine we're no longer learning from one incident. We're learning from thousands or tens of thousands of instances. And in every instance, our input varied a little bit. You know, it's it changed a little bit. So by learning from all of these instances at the same time, that that guy in the middle learned to differentiate between these different, uh, different cases, the causes and effects, right? So we learn an overall much more robust mapping when we bring all the data together. Right. So this is what we systematically showed in our paper.
1: Going back to your metaphor about building houses, so imagine we have now a network that can build houses, for example. Does it also mean that we might be able to build houses that we could not think of before? So that actually the AI is coming up with new physics that we didn't know existed.
0: That's a very good question. Uh, remember, I said that uh, you know training a neural network is just like uh, is just like asking a question, right? Uh, the, the advantage of AI is that this can be a, a very complex function, right? A very complex function. Uh, so, uh, so we use a very generic function, a very generic function of form, and we train it on data. It almost gets that function from the data, right? So in the beginning, it's very generic. And after training, it gives you a functional form that, uh, that you can start to kind of interpret. Um, so that means uh, these neural networks have lots of capacity to represent very complex functions. So in other words, we don't have to specify uh, exactly what a function does, right? We can give it a very generic question. Uh, if I were to ask a question, I just ask, what is the relationship here? I don't ask you, hey, how how steep is the slope of this line here, right? So that's a very specific question. And I can ask you, how how steep is that that lump over like a parabolic function, right? So that's a very specific question. However, if I ask you in a generic way, what is the relationship here, right? Then it can learn something that we have not discovered ourselves. It could be a relationship that we have not recognized or have maybe misunderstanding of from our past experiments, right? So I think uh, this, Uh, this paradigm that allows us to mesh neural networks with plastic-based equations, essentially allows us to revisit revisit many of the assumptions we've made in the past, right? Uh, You know, it often happens that in geoscientific modeling world, uh, we have so many assumptions and so many equations that were actually obtained from limited amount of data sets or some guy who wrote the model 20 years ago he has to put an equation here you know without thinking too much because there needs to be a complete picture you need to, you know to fill a lot of blanks right so there's a, an equation here and we did not look back too much at it now what ai when we embed ai with physics what it allows us to do is to react, re-examine these equations should it be that formula then I don't tell you what it should be. I don't tell you it's a line, it's a parabolic. I just put a neural network there and let the neural network learn a relationship. And then we try to decipher that relationship. So it could be totally turn out to be something that we do not know, right? uh, And this question is so amazing that this also leads to a completely shift in the paradigm of of how we actually do science. Uh, In the old world, uh, it's hypothesis driven, right? So we have hypotheses these hypotheses turns into equations, turns into numerical solvers for these equations. And we connect all these pieces together, we must have the hypotheses of the entire world, right? And then you put it together, you confront it with data. Yeah. Now, uh, but as it always happens, we do not know the exact details of the entire world. There are many steps that we don't have complete information of. So in the new world, we can actually just put question mark on some of these locations and let data decide, you know, what is the most appropriate relationship in at those locations? Uh, in other words, it's not a hypothesis treatment really anymore. you are just posing a question and get answers from data.
1: It also takes out some of the human error that we're making, because sometimes we make assumptions based on what we think it should be. And now AI is just using all the data and see how the relationship should be or is.
0: Exactly. And uh, in fact, there has been some studies in the field of the in the field of hydrology where someone queried about a thousand papers, the authors of the papers, why do you choose such in model? And I, I believe that you know if I'm not misquoting them, the answer was that about 70% of the time people choose a model because that's what the advisor took them to use, right? So there's a lot of human bias that is being baked into this modeling process before you even start, but, um, and you, you know, this relates to why I started doing AI in the first place. So I started out being like a fully process-based modeler and I saw partial differential equations and we you know, connected, connecting, you know, shallow water equation to rich equation, all those equations that describe water flows and when I go to these modeling meetings, I start to feel that our complexity is going out of control. You know, spiraling out of control because everyone adds a little bit of module, and uh, you have uh, maybe thirty teams working on the same model, and somebody changed something here and changes changes your results. So any issue becomes very difficult to diagnose. Uh, also, there's legacy issues, and there's also I you know you have to admit there's sometimes also ego issues, uh, but Uh, But I was looking for something that is like a blank slate. I was looking for something that can get rid of a lot of the human biases and let us start a new, you know, and that was around 2015-ish. And I just, you know, by chance uh, sort of bumped into this world of neural networks. Uh, And that's when, um, 2015-ish, that's when I started to see that uh, deep learning is breaking, breaking records in these vision contests, right, in a lot of these different contests. And the thing that captured my attention was it says, now deep learning has the ability to extract features by itself. That really just hit me. I said, okay, if it can learn how to extract those useful features, can it extract science by itself, right? So, so that's what motivated me to get into uh, deep learning at that time.
1: Did you see a tipping point in, in the use of AI and science or in general, the tipping point of AI coming from some abnormal thing that no one is using to this will be something that everyone will be using?
0: You know, I think that a hundred years from now, assuming that we have not destroyed ourselves, uh, we're probably going to look at this classic uh this very classic picture of this this picture of lisi do playing goal game against Alpha because that is the moment I'm not sure if you know that picture where Elizabeth is playing the go game yeah. with Alpha um and that is the moment where the AI showed that they can almost learn they can learn extremely complex problems um, and they can be on par with human mind and that is I think a lot of times you, you only need to prove if this is a possible path or not. Um, once that's proven, a lot of the rest can follow, right? But that was like a watershed moment that I think, you know, will show up in the history books a hundred years from now.
1: Does it also mean, yeah, maybe it's sort of a side question. So when you see those physics equations, depending on the amount of data, maybe you also could have that, that there is a correlation, but it's not causation? Or does AI solve that problem?
0: Oh, uh, AI does not solve that problem. And this is when we need uh, to, to couple the two. So this is a, I summarized as one of the core drawbacks of AI. So it's not able to fully resolve the causation versus correlation issue. So you, let's, just, let's just imagine you have two variables that are highly correlated, and one variable caused an effect and the other variable is just correlated with the first one, and the AI would not be able to tell you which one is the causal factor and which one is not, right? So it it just you know there's there, there are physical concepts that are involved. I know there you know to not to offend some of the communities that are doing like causality research, and I believe those are completely worthwhile domains to pursue. I just in my personal view, I don't I don't know if we can fully resolve the causality just from data perspective. Because you can always rename some correlated variable as one of the input, and then you will not be able to differentiate between causal and correlated variables. So I've, especially when you have limited data, right? It's sort of the the way that AI community and the deep learning community address that problem is to give it enough data. So if you see enough occurrences of these different variations of causes and effects, you kind of learn to decipher, okay, which one is the true causal relationship? Given infinite amount of data, you can probably resolve this just by learning. Um, however, in most of our geoscientific domains, we don't have that much data, you know. Uh, you, you, even when you have a lot of satellites circling around the world, we have very limited observation ability in the subsurface, you know, in some of the variables that we care about, like, you know, recharge ground water recharge or deep soil moisture. So we don't really get to have that much data and confront it With that, with with the AI to to let it learn everything by itself. So here, then, what you can do is to bring in a certain physical equations and kind of put it together with neural networks. So those physical equations uh, are what we call priors, right? So the the uh, AI people would call it inductive bias. So some prior information that you bring into this uh, modeling system prior before learning. Uh, When when we impose that. I think the biggest merit is that it allows us to encode this causality information, okay? you know, hardcore coded inside the model. And it also allows us to express, uh, the sensitivities, correctly. You know, some, some input would certainly leads to some sort of amount of, out, some, some kind of output, right? So we can uh, essentially encode that information in the model. So you know, by the way, I can now sort of dif- uh, define this differentiable modeling here. It's essentially a seamless coupling uh, between neural networks and prior information, prior equations. Uh, and we train, the key is that we train this neural network together with the physical component in one stage. There's not pre training. We don't, uh, for those neural networks, uh, you, you know, typically we have, we have AI, you have some output supervised neural network. But here we don't have any output. You know, in a lot of our application cases, we have a neural network that outputs some parameters for the process based models, and we don't know the ground truth for those parameters. You know, you know we never have ground truth. We don't know how to provide them. However, the the NN provides some parameters, uh, which are then used by the process based model which then outputs some stuff that gets compared with observations and you back propagate between the NN. It's all done in one single stage. Uh, in that sense, you don't need ground truth for the, the outputs of the NN and you, you don't need to pre-train it, uh, although you can if you want to. Anyway, that's the definition of the differentiable model. Uh, so this, this paradigm allows us to impose our beliefs in the causality of the problem, in the sensitivity of the problem. Uh, I believe it's the it's the best paradigm uh, to a balance between uh, data learning and and our uh, the physical physical
1: equations and, and changing those parameters that's more or less a type of calibration but you use ai to do that
0: right yeah uh, it, in our in one of the paradigms we call it differentiable parameter learning Essentially, so we have a neural network that learns how to map from some raw observable quantities to some physical parameters right? These parameters are used by the process based model. Um, now, uh, we have no ground truth for those parameters. So, so, so we just, you know, train it and, and those parameters are not like independently tunable parameters. They are the outputs of the neural network. So we're training the whole thing so that the neural networks learn this mapping, uh, from raw information to these, uh, physical parameters.
1: Is it still then some, iterative loop, because you said it only runs once, but I think you still need a loop, right? That The outputs of your physical model then gives input back to your neural network, or not really?
0: Well, yes, you have a training loop here. Yeah, you you do have a training loop uh, that has a gradient that gets feedback from the loss function. So your process-based model can output something, right? That something can be the whole suite of variables that it outputs. And any of this that is observable you can compare with observations and you can compute a loss function and that loss function gets propagated through that uh, numerical model back to that neural network which are being trained so i have like a metaphor for this it's a, it's like a um, puppeteer you know think about the neural network as a puppeteer and the puppeteer is like manipulating the strings behind the puppet The puppet being the process based model right so the puppeteer is doing its magic, uh, and the puppet is doing certain things, and we want to regulate the behavior of the puppet. But and then you, in this training process, you're essentially training the puppeteer how to behave, right? So that the puppet do things correctly.
1: I think that's a really good analogy because it really, it really captures what you're trying to do. Yeah. It sounds a little
0: evil when I said that. But <laughs> yeah.
1: it, it does, it does, but I do get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some of the analogies are a bit evil. <laughs> Don't get fooled yeah. by the parents. <laughs> Th- that's why they say AI is evil, right? Uh, because of those analogies. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, we, do, we, need, we need to be careful.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, now you have combined your AI and climate change, and... You're actually yeah, combining so those physical models with uh, machine learning. Why is it so much better than the, than the old ways? Because in the old ways, we also used calibration of parameters and stuff like that. Why is this a better way to find your parameters?
0: Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Uh, so many reasons. One is what I said earlier, that now we have a new way of learning from massive amount of data in the past, our calibration paradigm can calibrate probably about 12 parameters. You know, uh, I used to do this, like, uh, there's a a method called shuffle complex evolutionary algorithm, which is an elite algorithm, by the way, it's a standard so that people understand. Uh, It's a very good algorithm. Now, but the dimension of it allows you to, you can probably do some 20 parameters, right? But now, when we train neural networks, how many weights are we talking about? For, like for the long short term memory neural networks that we have trained, or you can use a transformer. You know, we are talking about small scale problems compared to AI, right? We have about five hundred thousand weights. Five hundred thousand weights. Wow. Uh, but for something like ChatGPT, it's rumored to have a trillion weights, right? A trillion Jeez. weights, right? Wow. And my percept- Microsoft said they were going to publish an AI with 56 trillion weights, right? That's insane. That, that is completely insane. And they use this massive amount of energy, by the way. They should be aware of what they're doing. No, Now, coming back to our, that amount of weights, one trillion is to us is practically boundless, right? It's practically, there's no upper selling. We can do whatever we want in, within that limit. So we were never able to do that. we were at best calibrating like 12 parameters. And that is that quantitative difference leads to a qualitative difference. Because you can only calibrate so many parameters, it's like a small statistical curve. So you can only fit to so much data, right? And in order for you to fit so much data in the past, what you gotta do is you divide the data into many small pockets and you fit a small, simple equation to those pockets. You know, this small piece of data, right? Um, it's not meaningful to 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 put a model for all the data at the same time. You cannot learn anyway. Um and and this is because this is because in the past these algorithms do not have access to the gradients, fundamentally, because of that reason. They have to try an error to solve a problem, and they have to build like a response service. So imagine, like I can do, I can give another uh, evil metaphor. Let's say that we have a hot surface here, like a hot plate, right? And we put my, I put my hand here, and it's very hot. And I'm gonna I'm gonna move my hand right away, right? So why how did I know that? Because there's a direct signal that goes from my finger all the way through my neural networks into my mind. I know what is causing the pain and I can move it directly. But in the traditional way of doing this calibration, you will have to cast many points around this surface and you know based on those responses, you know, oh, it's a little hot here. it's not very hot here. Maybe I can move my hand a little bit to the right and I'm kind of gonna cast a new set of points around here and keep move, keep thinking about that, you know, keep working and then say, oh, that generation, it's a little bit hot on the top, maybe a little bit cooler in the bottom. So we saw that using in multiple generations, right? So this is traditional evolutionary algorithm. Uh, but if I did that, my hands have be fried, right? So this is not a this is fundamentally not a paradigm that you use to solve problems within one generation's time, right? <laughs> within my generation's time, we actually solve problems using neural networks in a way, you know, metaphorically, using a direct signal uh, from the cause to the out, out, output, right? um uh, so uh so in in essence i think some of the older algorithms uh like evolutionary algorithms they are wonderful algorithms for for the type of problems that they solve right they solve like uh, across cross-generational long time scale type of problems right and they can give you what they call a, a, you know a global up however if you have massive amount of decisions to make they have a massive amount of a large amount of decision space, and you need to make that decision very quickly, then the evolutionary algorithms are not the most suitable for that problem. You need the correct direct gradients uh, to attribute the, the outcome to certain causes. Right. Uh, and this is why I mentioned that this differentiable programming paradigm really is a game changer because it allows us, it allows the signal to pass from the outcome back to the causes directly.
1: One thing that pops in my mind also is when you say we have so many parameters that we can calibrate, to calibrate or determine so many parameters, you also need a a major amount of data, but those are not always available. Is there a way to solve that problem?
0: Yes. Um, And so the, the differentiable modeling paradigm meshes neural networks with process-based equation, and neural, like I said, neural net, neural networks, are like a question mark. But to answer those questions, you need data, right? So there's as much you can think of it as uh, there's a cost to solve these problems, and the cost is data, right? So if you have lots of data, you can solve bigger problems. If you have a small amount of data, you can solve smaller problems. The nice thing about differential program, uh, differential modeling, is that this whole question versus prior is elastic, right? It's elastic. So let's say you have a ton of data, then you can have a larger portion of that modeling chain being non-determined, being tunable, being marks. If you have relatively limited amount of data, then you can fix a larger part of the problem and ask only a small question that that you can afford, you know, in the in the in terms of the cost on the data.
1: So when you have less Data, you can still ask questions, but your questions need to be smaller and more precise.
0: Exactly. Smaller and more precise. And I often also say this, that when we train a supervised machine learning algorithm on some data from X to Y, right? From going from X to Y, uh, we train one big algorithm. Sometimes it does a fantastic job. The accuracy is amazing. But we have some problem understanding that relationship. And the reason is, from x to y, there might be twenty different processes involved, right? It's a convolut- it's a complicated chain of chain of events that that leads you from x to y. So you learn an overall mapping. It intertwined all of these things together. We don't understand what we learned from interpretability point of view. Now, what differential pro- programming uh, or differential modeling allows you to do is, you can cut this problem into ten different pieces. Right? And you say, for eight of these pieces, I think I already know what's going on. So you can write the equations for eight pieces, but you put neural networks for two of these problems. And when you learned it, because it's narrowed to that small scope, you understand what you learned, right? So in our case, we can learn a mapping relationship from one single attribute to a parameter or, or a, multi- a few attributes to a parameter. Then we can kind of visualize that relationship or we can um you know look at what the response to the neural network neural network learned and we can make interpretations of it right so that uh, in, in in that interpretation um these uh physical equations actually serve as constraints that narrows the scope of the learning so we can understand the outcome of the learning
1: do you have some tangible example of that of, of like a problem that you cut into smaller equations or smaller problems?
0: Uh we do have that. I and mean, then that paper hasn't been published, but I talked about it, you know, since it's a podcast, I, I can talk about it on a very loose term. Essentially we have there is a we have a relationship between rainfall and runoff. Okay, so rainfall is how much rain does it fall? Runoff is how much of that water runs into the uh, river network. Right. Uh, so we have a we have habitually made an assumption in, in particular in this model that we're testing, it made it it has a power law equation that describes uh, this uh, the rainfall and runoff ratio uh, as a function as a power law function of the soil moisture. Okay. So so and and if you look at the the curve, it looks like a smooth curve that, that gradually pairs up. Right. So what we did is we replaced that equation with a neural network and we trained it on big data with some kind of inputs such as soil moisture and um, you know some parameters and precipitation as inputs into that neural network. And essentially the output of that neural network is the uh, runoff ratio, okay, the runoff over the rainfall. And that gets feed into the next components of the models. Uh, so after learning, we realize, uh gosh, it never wants to do these smooth curves. What it wants to do is these uh, threshold-like functions that goes smoothly. And then all of a sudden it jumps higher and, and goes the other way. So your, your power law will never give you that. Um, the other thing we find is that, that those curves actually is also dependent on the amount of rainfall. Okay, so basically if you had today have a big rainfall, then it's more likely to become runoff. And it's, it's actually, this is obvious from, it's not a new finding, It's it's obvious from another model. But this model makes, a, an equation that is somewhat flawed, which is then discovered by the neural network. And we learn uh, relationships, which if you look at, it makes sense.
1: Are this some of the major breakthroughs that you foresee that the AI will help solve, uh, actually, or find problems that we have implemented now unwillingly?
0: I think from, for for common for common people, out here, I think that AI are going to, or let's just say, because uh, because I'm not doing the AI proper, right? We're we're leveraging some aspects of machine learning into our models, but I think that uh, these technology will allow us to much better forecast floods and droughts and your future, how how your uh, crops grow, right? How how pests might grow given certain moisture information. So we will be much better positioned to give accurate information. That allows us to disseminate this information at low cost. And I think that's gonna bring larger benefits to the the general population. Uh, Just imagine that you're growing flowers in your backyard and you want to predict how well it's going, going to grow. In the past, we cannot afford to give you a precise answer, but now, we can actually give everyone uh accurate answers uh at a small cost so so i think a lot of change is going to happen uh, oh, many people don't realize like what uh these environmental predictions can do because it was like a, like a never a market you know there was like never some. you won't be thinking about paying a little bit of money to get this information right uh that's because in the past it has always been this government behavior uh but with the new advent of AI, I think uh, a lot of that population, a lot of the information will be uh, much wider uh, disseminated, and people can get this information very, with very little cost. So I think there in the future, people are going to see that.
1: So we'll be able to get like models or solutions tailored to our daily problems. And also on, on the larger scale for climate change, we'll be able to see the droughts and the floods. And we we'll, based on actually, also on what you said, based on human behavior and other stuff that are happening. So we might be able to better predict our course for mati- mitigation.
0: Yeah, mitigation. And you can make short-term decisions or long-term decisions. I'll give you another example. For if you need to make a purchase of a home property, right? You want to know what is the risk of this property getting flooded so in the past with some and then the insurance company would determine how much premium you have to pay to to build there uh, because it comes with certain risks right so uh, i think in the future we're going to be able to get that information much more rapidly and more accurately uh, because you often hear reports where people are complaining that we're not living on a floodplain and this is delineated as in the floodplain and we're paying a lot of premium for that so if we're able to do this on a big scale you know but high resolution uh, and a more accurate basis i think that the future models can offer such information not just to insurance companies but to everyday folks who wants to know that information
1: there are some great things to look out for do you have some take home message for our listeners?
0: Yeah, I I would sort of uh, reiterate that we should not perceive AI as a black box, or rather we can take what is the most essential elements of AI and and migrate it and uh, make it work with our our existing knowledge, make the best of data.
1: This was the 22nd episode of Apple Finch Pudding. I want to thank Chao Pan Chen for the information. Let's meet again for the next episode of Apple Finch Pudding.